Well, this past Monday, Linda and I attended a conference in Concord, North Carolina. And I tagged along. When you come out of the hotel entrance, um, you can see the Charlotte Motor Speedway right across the street. And brought back memories of years ago when we attended a race uh, back in May of 2000. And we were on our way home going north on I-85, and we began to see emergency vehicle after emergency vehicle going south on I-85. And we didn't know what it was at that time. We thought there had been a wreck of some sort after people were leaving the race. So it wasn't until we got home and we turned on the TV that we read about, and some of you may remember this, the pedestrian bridge that collapsed. There was an 80-foot section of this 320-foot steel and concrete walkway that literally snapped in half. Pedestrians fell about 17 feet to U.S. Highway 29. And um, basically, 107 people were injured and 13 were critically injured. Now, there was an investigation and there was all sorts of um, conversations about what happened. Um, but interestingly, what they finally revealed was corrosion was the cause of the weakening of the bridge's steel supports. And it wasn't the natural elements that caused the corrosion. It was, as they found out, caused by, now this is way above my pay grade, by the way. This is the part in chemistry where I checked out in high school. But it was caused by calcium chloride, which was a highly corrosive chemical compound, which was a component of the grout, which is that mortar or paste that you fill the crevices. And it surrounded all of these steel cables. And when the chemical entered the grout, it helped speed up the drying process. The problem was it was also known to corrode. So at some point, all 11 steel cables that were buried in this concrete began to corrode and the bridge began to collapse. It was something on the inside, something that was added over time and it caused the weakening of these steel supports and corrosion which caused the collapse. Now that's the metaphor I want to work with over the next few moments. Last couple of weeks, I've been focusing on the way of love as a way to rehumanize our world, as a way to redeem our world, help make our world a more kind and gentle, inhabitable place where fear is cast out, the kind of fear that can be replaced by hospitality, that can be replaced by acceptance and inclusivity. Love is, as the Scriptures says, the perfect bond of unity. Love is that which binds us together as a faith community, as a church, and often as a society. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Unity can be made up of folks from different walks of life, different political leanings, different understandings of theology. And it is love that is this key bonding agent which creates this unity. So this is not some kind of sentimental, shallow love. This is kind of love that takes work. It takes hard work. It's the kind of love that is intentional and by choice. It's not the kind of love that I drift into it. I intentionally choose to love because God has first loved me, or God has first loved us. And that's the part that I think is so important to underscore. I don't manufacture this love on my own. It comes first from encountering God's love, and that love in the living Christ. An author by the name of David Benner puts it this way, Human love communicates divine love. There is no other source of love but God. Only perfect love can completely cast out fear. And since God alone is perfect love, there is no substitute for learning what love really is by coming back to the source. God is the original that shows up the limitations of all of our copies. 
His love and only God's love is capable of the deep transformation we desperately need. So if you want a picture of that love, that kind of love, simply look at the life of Jesus. You want to see God, look at Jesus. In the same way that Jesus loved those around him. Not only how he loved him, but who he loved. In that same way, Jesus loves us. Even kids sing this song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the scriptures, the Bible tells me so. For me, I have to keep remembering this because, again, I try to manufacture this kind of love. I try to grit my teeth. I try to power through it. And I find out that has very minimal staying power. But what I find is when my life, my heart, my soul, when I embrace and I immerse myself in the love that God has for me, it can be transformative to know how God loves me, how many times God keeps on loving me, which is constant, how many times I don't even acknowledge God's love, but God keeps on loving. It becomes that transformative experience. So this love from God, the love that comes from God, is often this bridge between ourselves and others. Now we think about that. We use that metaphor a lot. We talk about bridging our differences. We talk about building bridges and not walls. The bridge has always been this image of what love can do as it connects up two sides, allows folks to go back and forth, to share life, to transcend differences. It's often the bridge that gets us from across great chasms, allows us to get from one side to the next. Even in relationships where great chasms exist, the bridges we build through love can often help us cross over those differences, meet each other halfway, or even cross over to the other person's side. But again, the metaphor, as we've heard this morning, bridges can collapse. And oftentimes they collapse due to this inward work of corrosion over a long period of time and almost in an undetectable way. And it's often, and this is where I'm getting back to Paul's words, I think it's often this jealousy and envy that can be sort of these corrosive agents of love that we seek to build relationships and to bridge relationships and differences. But it's, it's the corrosiveness of envy which eats away at it and oftentimes causes it to collapse. 1 Corinthians 13, where I read earlier, Paul's description of love begins this way. We've heard it the last couple of weeks. Love is patient. Love is kind. Paul begins to tell us what love is, and then he says that what love is not. It is not envious. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant, or it is not rude. Now, different translations have different ways of capturing this. Different translations have a different way of wording this. But they keep circling back around to these two words, envy and jealousy. And I often think, that when these two take over, it manifests itself as arrogance, as boastfulness, as rudeness. In fact, envy is probably the leading corrosive agent of love. It's, so it's important to know what this word means, the word that Paul is getting at. The word that Paul uses for envy basically means this, to be negatively energized with an embittered mind. It's a displeasure at seeing someone else do well or succeed. One definition put it this way, quote, it is the trait of being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain. We have so much trouble seeing someone else do well. We have so much trouble seeing someone else succeed. It's like we're competing with them. And when they do well, we can't even bring ourselves to celebrate with them. Frederick Buechner, a uh, novelist, put it this way, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else be as unsuccessful as you are. It's the desire to have everybody else be as unsuccessful as you are. And the problem with envy is this, it never satisfies. 
It may taste really good the first time, but as one person said, it leaves us emptier, more troubled, and even more isolated and self-loathing than before. Now, nothing I think is more corrosive to Christian community or relationships in general than envy. Envy is this bitter root that produces the bitter fruit of jealousy, arrogance, and rudeness. In fact, arrogance and rudeness are usually defense mechanisms, I have found, that people use to cover up their own insecurity and self-loathing. They envy someone else's success, or they perceive someone else as better than them, so they use rudeness and arrogance as a way to prop up their fragile sense of self. It's all designed to protect our hearts from feeling one more stab of our perceived sense of incompetence or our perceived sense of insecurity. The problem is this. We may not even realize it. I may not even realize it when I'm coming across as arrogant or rude. It's this persona that we wear. It feels so normal that we may not know any other way. It's just who we have become to protect ourselves. I just saw this one thought um, of a person I follow um, on, on social media. I always enjoy the way he kind of boils things down, and he wrote this about envy. He said, envy is always secretly denigrating others. It enjoys stirring up our inferiorities, especially with family and friends. So the thing with envy is this. It may be eating away at us, and we don't even know it. Sort of like that pedestrian bridge I mentioned that collapsed. The corrosion happened slowly over time until it could no longer handle the weight of the pedestrians. I think the corrosion of envy and jealousy, it happens inwardly in our soul over time. And at some point, the weight of other people's successes, the weight of other people's good fortune, is really more than we can bear, and our soul collapses into this pile of arrogance and rudeness and even vindictiveness against the other person. This is why I think Paul wrote these words in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians. And you've heard this before. God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior members, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. In other words, I hear Paul saying this. He reminds us that the way a faith community guards against dissension and envy is this. Enter into other people's suffering. If they're going through a tough time, come alongside them. Be present to them. If they have a great time, if they have a success, if things go well for them, celebrate with them. Be joyful with them. Whatever that looks like, clap, slap them on the back, send them a card, just simply be happy they did well. Now, it's hard to imagine ourselves being jealous or envious. We don't like to think that we harbor it in any way, and maybe we don't. But I have to tell you, in my more honest moments, I have to admit that I can be envious and I can be jealous. And it's in those moments that I want to boast about my own successes and I can be rude to others. Not rude in this kind of aggressive way, but rude in that I will simply choose to ignore the person or to not acknowledge their presence or even what has gone well for them. I have to tell you, my my envy rears its ugly little head, and sometimes it's a really big head, but sometimes it's this little little head. It, It rears its ugly little head when I pastor, and I know a pastor personally, or I know a colleague that gets recognized, or they have some measure of success. Maybe they wrote an article, or they had a book published, and I kind of roll my eyes and think, well, anybody could write for that magazine, or that publisher must have been really hard up for more books. 
And it's possible that maybe their congregation has experienced a a fruitful season. And all things are hitting on all cylinders and they're growing. And maybe they were invited to speak somewhere and they get written up with a nice bio and a nice glossy photo. And you get the idea. You get the idea that something is not going your way. That somehow they're taking something from you that should be yours. Now, I'm getting kind of exhausted confessing my sins, so I'm going to move on. But the point of it is this. It happens to all of us, and I don't know if it happens to you, but it happens to me. And what happens is I get to that place where what I'm going to say is I'm not even going to acknowledge that they did well. Because number one, they did well. And number two, I didn't do well, or I perceive that I didn't do well. When I find out, it's more about my own sense of inferiority at that moment. It's more about my own sense of competition. It's more about my own mistaken sense that life is made up in winners and losers, and if somebody did well, I lost something. So here's the end result of envy. You can collapse into your own world of self-pity. You can focus less on the gifts that are present in your life, and you can focus more on what you don't have in your life. You can get caught up in the deadly comparison game, and rather than developing your own gifts, you can continually compare yourself to others. And ultimately, Here's the way this ends. You will become sullen when others do well. You'll miss the joy of celebrating with others. And because you're so wrapped up in hoping they'll trip and fall, you will do all of that just so you can feel better about yourself. And I know this is very direct. I know it feels very, very direct. But it has to be because I think if envy goes undetected, it can end up like this corrosion on this pedestrian bridge. And there's this huge collapse in our life that may even damage relationships, may damage community critically in a way that these people were critically injured. So how do you protect yourself and guard yourself against this? Well, first is simply this. Open yourself up to this encounter with divine love in your life. When we allow God to love us in the way that God wants to love us, we no longer go seeking for outward success or achievement to prop up our soul and our insecurity. To be secure in God's love, is to live as God's beloved and to rest in that love. It's to have our identity shaped and formed by the same words that God spoke to Jesus, you are my son and my daughter in whom I am well pleased. When God says, I love you, think about that for a moment. When God says, I love you, what God is really saying is, I am so pleased with you. I am so delighted in you. There is nothing in this world that I delight more in than you. Regardless of who you are, what you've done, what you haven't done, what you will never do, I am so pleased that you are my child, that you are my son, and that you are my daughter. I think the second thing is this. Open yourself up to truly celebrating with others when they do well and when they they succeed, especially those who you have internally been competing with. The best spiritual practice we can engage in that protects us from envy, is to celebrate with others when they succeed. Not in this kind of grip-my-teeth way, but to be truly happy for their success and wish them well. And we can only do this when we know deep in our soul that their success takes nothing away from us personally. On the contrary, their success adds something to the good of life, to the good of this world, and for that we can be joyful. In fact, go the extra mile. Write them a note. Send them a way-to-go email. Text them and say, I'm really happy for you. This is exciting. Now, I say that here, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to go through my mental Rolodex, and I'm going to find, because they're there, I'm going to find the people in my life that I internally compete with. The people that when they they succeed, 
I find envy just rising up in me, and I start to say sarcastic things within me, or I, st- or I start to maybe in some way denigrate it, or I just sort of hold back and say, well, they're on their own from here. I bet they couldn't do that again. I'm going to make an effort to write them a note. I think it's fantastic. I'm going to make an effort to send them a text. I heard this happen. I'm really happy for you. You're doing a lot for God's work. Whatever it may be, I'm going to really make an effort to reach out to somebody this week and celebrate with them. I'd invite you to do that as well. I'd invite you to find someone in your life that you envy, that you have jealousy, that when they succeed, it somehow communicates to you internally that you're not doing as well, that you're incompetent, and that you can reach out to them and just celebrate with them. And finally, I would say this, very simply, work on your own life. Author Elizabeth O'Connor writes this, quote, Envy is a symptom of a lack of appreciation of our own uniqueness and self-worth. Each of us has something to give that no one else has. In other words, this is kind of counterintuitive. Make friends with your envy. Listen to your envy. It's probably telling you that you lack appreciation for your own life. It's probably telling you that you lack appreciation for your own uniqueness and your own self-worth. It's probably telling you that you lack appreciation for the fact that each of us has something significant and powerful to offer. To, to offer. Befriend your envy. Let it move you towards working on your own life rather than using up our energy towards tearing someone else's life down and trying to work out their life as well. What is it you have to give? What gifts do you possess that you're not affirming or appreciating? And what do you need to do in order to heal the wounds that keep you from embracing your own self-worth? I'm just going to leave it there. I'm just going to just leave it there. The next few moments, maybe as a starting point, as we begin to transition and go our separate ways, is first of all to ask ourselves the question, do I really believe God loves me? Do I really believe that God delights in me and is just pleased with me as his child? The second thing I want to ask is this. Who in my life have I avoided offering words of celebration and congratulations and a way to go just simply because their success seems to take something away from me? Who would be the first person you would go to this week to offer them a way to go or congratulations?